Greetings, travelers, and welcome to the Geronimo Draws Podcast. I'm Robert Geronimo, creator of the Blood Realm comic series, and in this episode, I'll be discussing morality and fantasy writing with my special guest, Tyler Wentley, creator of the Red Koi comic series. Also, be sure to rate, subscribe, and share, as it does help the channel grow. Thank you, and enjoy the show. Let's get rocking, and let's get chatting. Part two of our discussion about uh, building worlds in fantasy, or building fantasy worlds. We had such a great time chatting uh, last time, so Tyler said, you know, i got a little theme in my head. I think maybe we could run with this, and I... I think it sounds like a great idea. So we got Mr. Tyler Wentland, the creator of Redcoy. How we doing? Good, man. Good, good. I'm ready to chat fantasy, Blood Realm and Redcoy. You're always ready. Always ready. <laughs> yeah. So today, man, you reached out and you, you messaged me about this uh, a topic that we could talk about. Yeah. And you kind of got my brain thinking a little bit. And I was like, huh. Like morality and fantasy, because mm-hmm. they're very much entwined, mm-hmm. you know. But then it started to get me thinking, and obviously, I'm interested to see, you know, you, you hear your thoughts on how you, you you wanted to pursue this. But I was like, but what kind of morals do I give my own characters, mm. and what is it about those morals that I wanna I want the readers to engage and root for them? Mm. But then, what about the characters who have no morals, mm. you know? Now. Uh, you know, does that is that fascinating for someone to read? Because you want to see how far could they go, mm-hmm. you know, without the morals. Because I, I think of Targanis immediately because he's everything anti-morals. That really kind of links into what I wanted to talk about. Um, mm. Because in so like I I, I listen to a lot of uh, philosophers and stuff like on YouTube, but a classic uh-huh. idea, and you you probably know about this but like a classic understanding of evil in the mm. medieval uh, realm is that evil is not a uh, it's not a um, an active it's not a, a presence it's a it's a mm. privation of good Ooh. it's a lack of what right. should be there like a cavity in a tooth you know what oh, i mean nice. so when you're saying it's like the anti so it's like if when we say a good is um you know the that that a a, a thing a person uh you know, a, a seed for a tree, it has mm-hmm. an uh, end to which it's purposed. That that's acorn perfect. is meant to be an oak tree. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's it's that's it's full flourishing. Now when oh it fails God. or it's cut down, there's a lack of what should be there. So you're talking about Targanis mm-hmm. and he's what I'm thinking about. Oh, like this wow. this thing, this yeah. sort of husk that's just sucking the life out of everything. Everything. Yeah. Wow. So it's like it's like the tree that's refused sunlight, mm-hmm. basically. Exactly. It slowly withers and rots and becomes dark and warped and twisted. And that's kind of what Targanis is. Mm-hmm. You know, Chiron is the light and he is literally birthed from the tether, from this dark place. Mm-hmm. And he's warped and twisted and everything like that. So it's funny, like you said, like it was meant to be an acorn tree, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But now if it's not given the proper care and again the sunlight and all these other things like you said it's like the cavity it's removed it's going to be something else and the first time i heard it i was like well no this doesn't make sense to me because i always thought well evil is a it it can be a a a thing a presence uh Mm. uh, an entity 
but you're when I, if you're if you're thinking about the uh, the intention, the purpose behind mm-hmm. uh, the, even a you know someone who's got a uh, you know who's sick who's got a, a tumor or something, I was like, well, mm-hmm. that's sort of a that's a that's a thing within them, but it's draining the life that should be there. Right. So I was like, this is a this is so strange. But the whole the thing that really got me thinking about it is that you know we're kind of in this strange place in the culture where mm-hmm. some there does seem to be this um sense that you know everything is relative right. what you think is what you think is what i think is what i think no, nothing is better than something else but that's not at all how we operate right. and so when i'm thinking about like fantasy i don't know that you could do fantasy well without objective realities of good and evil of objectively good and evil. true good and evil yeah you know yeah, you, yeah, I, I agree there is that you need that clear delineation, you know, mm-hmm. and in a way, fantasy is almost in a way like they're almost moral tales. I feel like they started that way, especially when mm-hmm. you think of Aesop's fables and all that stuff. Yeah. And, the, you know, they're great learning tools. But then yeah. when you start to start to put in deeper themes of mm-hmm. the human experience into these mm-hmm. things, they become much more real, you know, yeah. to us and to, to the reader as well. And it also makes me think about uh, another character. That character is is Lycurgus. Mm-hmm. So it's funny because I feel for Lycurgus. And that's the thing too. When when I'm developing these stories, I'm sure you feel the same way. I want the the protagonist to be engaging, mm-hmm. not just for me, you know, but also to the reader, for them to root for them. But sometimes there could be a dilemma to that. So like with Lycurgus, his love. The princess of Vorogoth. And then she is overcome by this terrible unknown sickness that all of the queen's wise men from all across the lands, no one can cure her, no one can help her. Right? So what is the only option? Well, it is to slay the last of these three ancient beasts. That is, it's considered completely uh, sacrilege. Mm. to slay these creatures it's as if imagine if like i mentioned before how the inspiration for the old beast was like how we view the dinosaurs you know mm-hmm. um now imagine if three dinosaurs still remained and they couldn't pass on their seed or anything like that this was mm-hmm. it and now but someone told you listen you have to slay them and, and make them extinct and retrieve their blood only then can you bring your love of your life back mm-hmm because her fate, the gods in this universe are saying she has to go. But the, the characters, the characters say no. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's this thing where you, you, you understand his plight. But yeah. you also know it's, but this is not, I have a feeling this is going to go bad. <laughs> well, that's, I think that that goes back to that, you know, so I mean, at least in like the Judeo-Christian worldview the what's that most foundational view is that you need to love god above everything right right your heart soul before anything and i think that that idea is basically you need to be loyal to the transcendent first because right you are fallen and you will if you if you place anything beyond the transcendent good be it your own family what would you as i'm a parent Sure. What would I not do if there's a chance that I can save my child? 
Right. Save my wife. So, right. Like you could rain. I could rain all sorts of evil on exactly. the world if it means that I preserve that thing that I built my life around. So in Precisely. the sense, that's the idea is you, you need to be, um, you need to be loyal to the transcendent first. If you are going to serve them well, serve your fellow man well, it's right. not an easy thing at all. No, and that that's why when when we come to Lycurgus, it's like, oh man, like I, I understand what, what you want to do here. Yeah. But ironically, what does it bring upon? It literally brings upon the entire series. <laughs> yeah. And we Everything. get blood realm, so <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, I mean, like, you know, he is pretty cool in that manner, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that act. That act is a defining moment mm -hmm. in what occurs for the future of the, mm -hmm. like it kicks off. I mean, it's a prologue in the first volume, mm -hmm. you know, and obviously now with Wrath of Kings, we're going to see that in full. We're going to see like Hergus in full in that whole journey. I can't wait for it. It's going to yeah. be so good. <laughs> um, that makes me kind of, ref when I'm reflecting on some of my characters, so like the most defining person in Iko's life who we never really see a full glimpse of is her father, Naga. Mm. Naga, who, um, as we find out in the second volume, is a good father, you mm -hmm. know, tra but trained her as a warrior. But I've always, I have these moments in the book where I, I do try to show he, there, there's a loving relationship there. You know, he's a doting father, mm. you know, and, and gave her everything he knew how to do. Mm -hmm. Gave her this name, gave her this um, heritage, mm -hmm. his whole life. But at the same time, Naga was absolutely brutal to his enemies. Mm -hmm. You know, loyal to the samurai clans above everything. And when he was told, you go out and conquer, he went out and conquered. And so you see in the beginning where mm -hmm. they, when his samurai moved into um, the haunted moor and they just start slaughtering and enslaving the frogmen. Mm. And they do so feeling quite self-righteous about it. Right. So, and what happens then? The frogmen lead him to build a castle over this little seed of evil. Oh. You know what I mean? So it, it, it but, That's but with crazy. Naga, I, I kind of I want these layers because it's like you have this person who he has his center right mm. and he thinks that if he has his center because he's strong enough whatever needs to be done to justify keeping it mm. can be done can be done can be done yeah wow right and but I wonder now does his view does the way his view to, his daughter view him is that uh is, is that very important to him yeah i mean in the and what i what i'm kind of starting to realize that she perhaps willfully turned a blind eye or mm. or accepted this as the way things were supposed to be because we do see yes we do see in this in the first volume when she realizes what he did to this species, yeah, she has this moment like where she's kind of like she's gone through, you know, hell in this haunted castle. She, you know, has mm. literally swum up from the underworld, 
kind of finds her way onto land and is just like, oh, father, like, oh my gosh. And it's, it's, it's sort wow. of something I drew from my own life when the first moment I realized that like my parents were actually people, right? you know, they're imperfect yeah. people. Yes. They're, you know, as flawed as me and, right. you know, but they're also people, you know, who I think have tried tried to do their best, you know, as mm-hmm. as well as they could with the circumstances mm-hmm. they were in. But for her, it's also that moment where, like, this person who defines so much of her life has now linked her to this brutal, brutal mm. stain, wow. and this this proud warrior history that she was a part of. It's it's not so shiny anymore. No, right. You know? There's there's some rust, you know, mm-hmm. to the luster. You know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Oh wow, that's 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 fantastic. So, is, are we going to dive more into that in the next oh, one? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Oh boy, yeah. You, um, I keep trying to give hints of it. You'll get a good one in uh, so issue five. That's part of the Alterna Indiegogo campaign. That's going to have, I think, the first. You actually in those those uh those couple first pages. Mm-hmm. There's a scene with the big dragon, like uh, yes. a, a big stone dragon, and yes. that's Naga. And Aiko is a little girl. Oh, that's And great. so I want to just add in these moments, but I always want to keep him kind of in shadow. You get flashes of his face, mm-hmm. but I don't know if I'll ever completely show him. You have him in the first volume, but he's in his mask, like his war mask. Right. That's right. You know? Oh, yeah. So, kind of like how Chiron, you don't see his face really. Yeah. Right. I basically just try to take your ideas and <laughs> no. Right no, it does scare me sometimes because I'm like, no, Rob, you can't. <laughs> no. I was going to do that. <laughs> no, I didn't mean it that way. I meant like, because you I, wanted I, to make him feel mythic. Yes, yes. Yeah, mythic, yeah. sort of detached. <laughs> He's this sort of specter in the darkness, you know, yeah. but, but also a point of light. And it's like, how do you reconcile that that someone can be you know, they're walking that line between good and evil just like you are. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, and they're trying to be an example or a beacon, you know, mm-hmm. or, or something to follow. And, and they, they hide. They mm-hmm. hide all that. You know, so when that comes out, that's going to be a very interesting moment in your series. See if I could pull it off. I don't know. I'm sure you can. <laughs> I'm sure you can. Well, you know, what's funny is that uh, another thing in my notes I had here um, is that you know, it's, it's like you said, like it's it's not always so simple. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you give them a moral cause and, and it can be to save a life, to save their lives, to, to change or improve the, life of, the lives of others. But there's always like, there's some, it's not always that simple. Mm-hmm. And my question was like, what, what cause do you pick for your characters? And mm-hmm. how do you make it relevant and believable? Man, I, it, the thing is, I don't even know if I necessarily picked... Iko's cause because by the time I realized what I had done, mm-hmm. what I had written, I was like, oh, this is me working through some stuff in my life. That's what happens. <laughs> and and then it was like, well, what does she do now? And at the time, I thought, oh, well, she wants to be free. And I had no real understanding of what freedom actually meant at that point. Mm-hmm. What I real and then I was you know I finished the uh, the second book, and I wanted to add another page. I mm-hmm. like I had something left to add, and I had this moment where like she's you know she's 
ripped off her patches. She's like, you know, cut her ornate hair off. You know, she's, right. she's kind of she's just moving into this new space. And she looks out to this like wilderness and she kind of like has this moment where she like looks serene and kind of smiles. But then I did another page mm. and I drew like, and I just had a flash of her eyes and they were really concerned looking. And I was like, what's that? Right. And then, I mean, I, it's taken a while, but I, so freedom, when we have this idea of freedom, freedom isn't necessarily, I just get to go do what I want right. for anything. True freedom. It's, it's you disciplining yourself towards an end. So it's like, if you want to have freedom to play basketball, Mm-hmm. someone doesn't just give you a basketball and send you out into a court to go crazy. Right. You discipline yourself to the rules of the game. Yes. Oh, interesting. And right. then when you trained and disciplined mm-hmm. yourself and mastered those skills, yeah. you are free to play basketball. I can't play but, basketball. By the way. <laughs> I was going to ask. I was like, are you a good basketball player? <laughs> so for her, the story now, the ultimate story for Red Koi for me is like she's was in this place of unity and she is just broken now mm. into a thousand pieces. How does oh, she yeah. bring those pieces back together? How does she yeah. do it? You know? Right. And that's the thing. That's that's the that's what makes it relatable because we're all trying to do that in a way, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh it's uh what was that line? Um the past is a is a is a shattered mirror, but when you try to pick it up you cut yourself. Mm, you know, that you know. I've never heard that. That is yeah. very true, though. It's those <laughs> moments when you're just sitting there, and then you think of something that you did, and you're like, "Oh God, no, wait!" You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. So that's the thing, too. You know, that's why um, the past and all that for your characters. You know, groundwork. You come up with this character, and you come up with this their moral uh, cause or what their belief is, and then groundwork needs to be made. Yeah. You know, uh, like like what groundwork might have been laid in the past which influence the attitudes of the present. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that plays a big role in making the cause believable and making the world believable of what led to this character. What, what, what events took place in the history of your world that made mm-hmm. this character now identify and believe in, in this cause and in in this morality, you know? So it, and it could be warped too. It could be a warped sense of reality. It could be whatever this character went through. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's been through a real, uh, like a living hell, mm-hmm. and now he has this cause. But it's like, whoa! <laughs> how did how did you do it? I mean, how did you come get come to Chiron's story? Uh, Chiron's story, uh, in terms of uh, well, I, I, obviously, I always love the idea of the night, you mm-hmm. know, and and um, and being you know, like Saint George, like we mentioned last time, mm-hmm. you know, this this beacon of of uh of light he's a warrior of light and he's he's like because you know, saint george was basically superman to all the crusaders during that time mm. that's why in all the artwork uh, saint george is leading mm-hmm. the crusaders into the the battles mm-hmm. you know and that's why they had the red cross too because he would carve the the cross behind the shield so i like that that type of character and that figure but then like you said your parents are people you know, and, and you realize that they have, they had to deal with stuff and overcome mm-hmm. demons themselves. So mainly Chiron was, was a symbol of me learning about Vietnam and my father being a Vietnam veteran. And, you know, hearing about that war 
and learning about it more and more on the scars of war on my father, where I was like, wow, this is terrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? And there's consequences to everything. And while Chiron believed he was doing the right thing for his people, which was obtaining magic, right? But in doing so, he gave birth to something much darker, which ended up coming to haunt him later on, much later. So, you know, it's almost like how the PTSD came back to haunt my father in a way. So like a living embodiment of that, of what went on over there and stuff he saw and what he had to do. So it, it's really, it's really fascinating. So that was really, that was really the, the, the most, the biggest inspiration for Chiron because he is this beacon, you know, he is this, this, the warrior you, you want to be and you want to emulate, mm-hmm. but then there's something deeper to that and, and to what made him that. And also everything there is, everything is imperfect. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. So yeah, so that was that was the big one for Chiron. So something that I don't and I don't know if if I necessarily agree with this or not, but I was started the main comparisons I was thinking about when this kind of whole question came up was like I'm I'm slowly working through the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And mm-hmm. I have already I read years ago the the Game of Thrones books. And the thing like I kind of liked at the time, and maybe I understand now why I kind of have let them go and was never really into the show, mm-hmm. is it, I think that there was sort of an attempt, and so someone correct me because I could be getting details wrong, but it seemed at least from the books there was an attempt to almost make um, morality a subjective thing it's a very nihilistic series it seems to me um well it, it it's interesting I, in a way because but the thing is it's very clear that sauron and saruman are even i mean or, in i meant in game of thrones oh game of thrones of i thought you said lord of the not rings not in lord of the rings lord oh, of not the rings in, oh. it's clear oh okay i, I was gonna face, say so you're like oh he doesn't know anything <laughs> about what he's talking about like, this poor creature he's, like, i'm sorry he's I, don't, I totally missed that uh, i meant to be in the raw other stream you know yeah i don't no, know no, no, game of thrones so yeah, it is more yeah definitely subjective yes sort of devolution into nihilist nihilism mm-hmm. everyone is like at our Star or Ned Stark is is cut. Oh, sorry, spoiler alert. <laughs> he's you know oh, he's sure. plain, and he yeah. seems to be like the one beacon of light. But and then, then you have some others. Oh, okay, yeah, right, yeah. But then you also learn that uh, some things that were said about him, the, yeah. these big glorious things that he did, didn't actually happen like that when they visit the past. Spoilers. Oh, see, and I don't, I don't even know this. So I, yeah. So it's, it's, it, it's, it's it makes it more real and more grounded. And mm. that's the kind of stuff I always gravitated to. And I never had never read Lord of the Rings. You know, I mean, I'm sorry. Um, what's it called? Game um, of Thrones. Game of Thrones. But my favorite character out of the entire Lord of the Rings series was always. Game of Thrones. No, I'm still talking about. Oh, okay. Rings, yeah. Now we switched. Okay. <laughs> Which is ironic because it's the same actor, Boromir. Oh, yes. I find yes. Boromir so fascinating because. Yeah. That character out of everyone felt so authentic to me, mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, we're all kind of Boromir, you know. Yeah. You know, we all want to be Aragorn, 
Right. Yes, it's true. <laughs> we but... want to be Legolas. Yeah. And even Gimli. Mm-hmm. Because they, they they have a very clear sense of right and wrong and mm-hmm. they're they're not tempted. Yep. You know, they're they're all and they're basically infallible. Mm-hmm. And even as we see in the series, but Boromir, like a part of me, it's terrifies me, but I feel like I could be Boromir at times. Oh yeah. Yeah, no, it's definitely. Scary. It's <laughs> and it's important to recognize that, you know? Yeah. To have that uh but yeah, one of my favorite uh, philosophers, Peter Kraft, he has a he would said that in a conversation. He just said, and he didn't like the way Boromir was treated in the films. He thought he was given much a much uh, better presentation in the original books. Um, mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings is one of those series. He's like, you can't die and, unless, until you've read it at least, you know. Yeah, but, he, but Boromir he said is the best character because he's. Oh, yeah. he's He's us, and he's the one, only one that you can almost touch, you know? Yes, 100%. You yeah. feel it, and you understand he means good He's because he's so human. And that's that's what I try to instill in a lot of the characters in Blood Room, and clearly what you do in Red Koi. You know, it's, we have morals, but our characters are fighting within themselves to keep those morals. Yeah, and the question, I think, is, you know, so Boromir, his desire is based on his love of his country yes you know again what's got to be beyond that the 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 great mm-hmm. the transcendent good the, the right. larger good exactly. of of you know the the middle earth at that point and mm-hmm. the you know the 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 good that's going to hold back um sauron yeah but for him the good it leads to gondor yes and, and Okay, I get it. I totally get it. But that can corrupt you too. You're putting yeah. that before that larger transcendent good. Long, yeah, exactly. And yeah. It, it it makes him easily tempted and make things and make decisions that are irrational because he's only doing it for that, mm-hmm. not not the transcendent. Yeah. And that's what's so fascinating about his character and a lot of those types of characters. And understandably so. That's oh, yeah. He, that's his family. That's his whole life. You know? it, right. And that's the hardest thing. And I think that's... It's I an think impossible that's ask. You know, yeah, it, of course. Think about what's beyond that. Are you kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have this weapon that can protect us forever. Forever. Right. Well, and that's why I, I have the audience ask themselves too, like with, with, with Chiron, what would you do? You know, you're already a great warrior. You've been enslaved by the mages. Now you hear about these witches who can link you to the tether and give you remarkable powers. But there's something could come out of it. We don't know what, but the, the, whatever the tether takes, but it, it could push something back that's mm-hmm. corrupted. Do you want to take that? Would you take that risk for your people? You know, that's the tragic part of Chiron. So it's and I'm not one of these guys, but I just imagine like those guys that are like that are the alpha warrior, that are like the big dog, that that right. do that. Like, and it's like if you're one of those guys, you have to have that confidence that I can do it. Right, I can go into the tether, and I can do. It. I'm Aragorn. I can go into the cave of the dead. And yes. I can, I can bring them out. What Are say you? Crazy, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The best part. Oh my god! I always like the question of what morality do the evil races follow? 
Mm. And that's something I wanted to do with Blood Run with the Satrians, mm -hmm. because I, we always follow humans all mm -hmm. the time in fantasy stories. So I wanted to say, all right, you know what? Humans are gone. They're, there's a genocide, right? There's only a few left. They're trying to rebuild. And now we're following the other races. And so you see the evil race of the Satrians, but then slowly you start to see their own morality and you see how they, how they got to the, the place where they are, where we mm -hmm. see them in the story in the present. But then things get more complicated when you start to see um, gods with yeah. their own concept of concepts of morality. Yeah. So it kind of gets complicated there. Well, this god in this universe, you know, say, you know, the Satrians, I say in volume one, they, they do worship or they mm -hmm. say in their in their texts and their in their scribe, uh, excuse me, in their um, in their tribes, they believe that the, the Lord Cyphus's heart is is a sacred relic, mm -hmm. you know, but obviously the others don't. They believe it's it's the embodiment of pure evil. So, I, I, do you do you handle that at all in your story with with different themes of of, of gods and their sense of morality? Yeah, the uh, the pantheon religious kind of undertone is coming together. Mm -hmm. um, I you have so much more work done than I do, so I I, I mm -hmm. really haven't gotten too far into clarifying all. Of, like we know at least from the first volume, you know, Ryushin, the sea dragon, that, that was the god of the samurai, small g god of the samurai. I thought it was she was going to be big g god of the samurai for a while, and I was like, no, she's small g. There's, <laughs> more, g. <laughs> there's more going on here that uh, oh, meets the eye. Um, but I'm starting to think about the other people. You know, in um, mm. what just came out, Oh yeah, so like I, you know, I forget to read them. I read them when they come out, and then I remember what happened. But like so, in issue four, there's this moment, and and I don't know where this came from. So they're on this little island that's like surrounded by alligators in this sunken <sighs> temple, and so he is this moment. You know, she said something snarky and took off. He's like, he's he knows what he has to do. He makes a quick decision. He just says, "Where is it? Duty and honor, brothers." So he turns to the other rangers who just, you know, are stone face, draws blood, and then the two of them just leap in. And then he wow. says, peace, brothers. You know, he's just like, all right, they know what they have to do. They're they're sacrificing in this moment. Wow. But then he has this line. So, you know, here are the twins, Tez and Kotho. Mm -hmm. They're just going to town. And then there's this moment here. He has this line, until we meet again beyond the white gate, atop the sacred mountain where sits the eternal garden, and we join the great mystery. That's a lot of things. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. That's a lot of things that I've read. That's a lot of things that I think about. But f for me, so their holy holy city of Veracur, that's the center. That's where mm. they're from. And at the center of Veracur is the White Gate. It's mm. the inner, it's the, the, that's the holy city within the larger city. So when the Rangers return after their 25 years of service, they, they can, they live there with their oh, families okay. and, and, you know, they're, they're wolves, you know, they, if they make yeah. it to the end of their service, they, they sit there, but th there's a spiritual element here that they're at peace with, you know, mm. and it's, it's very, um, I don't know. It's something that I want to define, define them so much. Mm. And I, I don't want necessarily hard barriers between peoples. I think a lot of times, especially, you know, in our 
in our modern context, we think, okay, well, you have your thing here, and right. I have my thing here, and mm -hmm. there's a wall between them. That No, and that's not how history worked. That's not how no. peoples worked. The, no. the edges blurred together. So it's like you yes. – I mean, you hear these things sometimes like, oh, you know, Christians stole this holiday from the pagans or of course. you believed in you believe in Odin and I believe in Vishnu. It's like yeah. yes, geographical locations make a difference. Yes, but it's not like there is just a hard line where we said, That's our thing now. No. You know? It's like cultures blend and move together. Absolutely. It's, it's like God. No, that's exactly what happened. As that's why that's why there's so many pagan figures on the Sistine Chapel. Mm -hmm. Because no matter what, they were still they it was their culture and history. Mm -hmm. And that's why you have all of these Christian biblical and uh, you know Old Testament figures interacting with all of the seers and all these different mm -hmm. figures of, of mythology up there. And if you actually like so and it's such if you if you limit it in that way like draw that line it's such a boring way to look at it because if you actually get into these ancient texts get into the bible the bhagavad gita i can't say mm -hmm. it a lot of these ancient texts they're dialoguing with each other yeah these conversations are happening and i mean between you know minor gods between mm -hmm. ancient peoples like yeah. there's there's their responses that are happening here as these things are kind of unfolding, it's way more interesting and weird and complicated yeah. than sometimes we as modern people want to see it. It's like, no, let it be weird, man. Let's get, let's. It is weird. And that's why we love it. Awesome, you know, <laughs> it's, it's so cool. We, you know, we're trying to figure things out ourselves. And we, we like we said, <laughs> and we use our characters. So, you know, sometimes we put different parts of ourselves morally in these mm -hmm. characters. Mm -hmm. You know, absolutely. So there's the there's a character you know who, like like Targanis, who just is the embodiment of of he's the anti-human basically, anti-light, and he does the worst things imaginable because mm -hmm. he has no center. He's so far mm -hmm. from from light, right? He's pure. Then, um, what is the word? He's pure like he's pure passions. He's pure excess. He's pure completely. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. And I have a short story I want to do of him one day. I think all of this, giving each character their own moral center and how, because no matter what, it's still the same world, mm -hmm. you know? So you have Mordrin and you have your world. Mm -hmm. It's it's interesting to see other characters with a different moral center interact yes. with the world around them, but it's the same world that other characters are interacting with, mm -hmm. you know? Well, yeah. So if you oh, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> no, because I I was gonna say one thing in in, in volume two. Okay, mm -hmm. the Satrians are going down further, further down. Then they see the city of Arcos, right? And <clears throat> although Olek, right, he he mentions how when the Satrians enter that city, there's like nervousness. They're anxious. Mm -hmm. They shudder because this is a city, a city of the Iron Wolves. Iron Wolves had just, an Iron Wolf had just come in and just rained hell on them. Yeah. So, but Olek, although there was the great Vorgothian Rebellion and, and the mages lost, 
he still looks at the city at the same time with a little reverence, mm. right? And so He's it's tapped in. Yes. So you have these two reactions because right away they go in there and Olek is looking, don't get me wrong, he's nervous, but like Mm -hmm. right away the first thing Grenick says is goes, he's like, Olek, what is this place? You know? Mm -hmm. And he's he's like, is is this what I think it is? And he's like, they're also superstitious beings. So it it just their their experiences and how it could be viewed differently for each character Mm -hmm. and how they, they react. To have Oleg, who's so tapped into the spiritual world, exactly. who is rightly scared of it mm-hmm. and rightly reverent of it. It's like mm-hmm. that idea of, you know, um, is your fear just pure terror or is your fear more respect? Right. Because you know what can happen. You know exactly. what's going on. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's something, you know, to the question that, um, was it metal movies that, brought up about like what do they or was berserker about what did the evil races follow mm-hmm. um i don't i try to think about you know well what would they value most Ooh. you know what would they value more than anything um it because like i think you know the vikings have become such like a great popularized version of like this pagan terror yeah um but if you look back to their cultures and a lot of the uh germanic northern peoples sometimes we think all ancient people sort of always thought like we did yeah oh yeah which is so so not true oh my goodness but if you think like uh, there's this great uh book that i read called uh, the battle that stopped rome Mm. and it's about the battle of Teutonberg forest have you heard about this oh yeah that's what the barbarians right? yeah so three yep. um roman legions were mm-hmm. sort of lured into the black forest in germany it and trap. it was a trap and the germans yeah. slaughtered them almost to a man but then what they found i think if two years later another legion was sent to try and recover the eagle and what remains they could um and what they found were the remains of the germanic rituals mm. which involved you know crucifying the soldiers to trees you know putting splitting putting um you know spikes through their skulls you know draining their blood into their their bogs you know a lot of it and these these were part of their religious rituals a lot of the cultures were built around the strength of the warrior and and power and that's what the gods demanded yes um what we have strongest yes the strength was not was more oh, the most respected thing mm-hmm. um but they came in and they found this. and these are romans these are not <laughs> soft people these are hard right. brutal people and they're coming Absolutely. into this dark forest and there's just all of these remains and bones everywhere they're like and they're freaked out by it oh yeah and rightly so yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah absolutely but it's it's it you, you know, that, that's an excellent point is is what they want to attain, mm-hmm. you know? Is what to to approach the the villains, you know? Mm-hmm. Because that that does not seem out of the ordinary for the barbarian. Mm-hmm. That's something. Oh, even look at the Greeks, the ancient Greeks. You, it it's disgraceful to die old, mm-hmm. especially in Sparta. That's not just a myth that was made up in in three hundred. <laughs> That was a thing yeah. that people were, these 20 year olds were, were if they, if like, if you were, if you didn't die in battle, 
I mean, good luck coming home because, wow, you really just shamed us and the gods. Mm. And it was, it was <clears throat> terrifying to, to have wrinkles. It was disgraceful. It was the Romans, ironically, it's why it's so interesting. The Romans who were slaves to the Greeks and adopted every, all that culture, they were the first ones to say, no, put my wrinkles. Like Julius Caesar, the famous portrait of him. It's the famous bust. I want wrinkles, I want my scars, and I want my bald spot because mm. my wrinkles represent my experience. Mm. And my experience gives me wisdom. Mm -hmm. And those I wear all those wrinkles and all those things with pride, like battle scars. And that's why those portraits, I think it might be during the Hellenistic period, all have wrinkles and kind of imperfections. So they, they, they really embrace that. As opposed to now, it, it, with the ancient Greeks who were their their oppressors, mm -hmm. who taught them crucifixion. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Obviously, the Romans perfected it. Yeah, <laughs> we'll do it better. What a horrible thing! <laughs> That's crazy. It's absolutely insane. When you read about the history of that stuff, it's like started around like Egypt, mostly Persia, because they did it mm -hmm. to the Greeks because the Greeks were their slaves. And then the Greeks learned it and they did it to the Romans. It's like everything has a, a that's why like morality and everything, it changes with mm -hmm. each civilization. And that's what you, it's important. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, go. Well, that's like, a, I mean, so like, so the crucifixion, that's excruciating, excruciate <laughs> from, from the cross. Right, um, yeah. That's why it's like when you actually start to think about where these ideas came from and kind of what these pivotal moments were that set it on a new course. I mean, it's it's crazy. There's yeah. this great book um, by a secular historian, Tom mm. Holland, called Dominion, mm. and he's looking and it's basically looking at the uh, the history of Christianity from a yeah. secular historical perspective. So Ooh, anybody who's listening who's like. Uh, not for me. It. I mean, take take it from a guy who doesn't really have a dog in the fight. But he, in a great way, he's an amazing historian. He's written about the Romans, the Greeks. He's written about the medieval period. He's written mm. about um, the uh, the Islamic world. He's oh wow. He's a great great historian. But he he wanted to write a book, kind of like peeling back where all these Christian assumptions he had were. Because mm -hmm. he thought he just had secular liberal assumptions. Right. And then when he started to look at them, he's like, well, these actually come from this tradition that mm -hmm. obviously defined England. He's like, well, let me go back to that. And through his historical peeling, it really does go back to Christ in right. terms of this sense of like um, protection of the weak. Right. You know, sacrifice of self, you know, for the other these values do actually go back to this very strange person which mm. is crazy to me like thinking right oh really <laughs> right 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 because you hear that but you're like what are the chances that's and you have a, read that that sounds interesting it's a great book but it was a moment where it's like if you can put on those lenses right and then you also think of from the perspective of the romans sure come from this you know society of power and strength mm -hmm. and iron and just brutality. Like, oh yeah, what he was saying was absolutely crazy. Yeah, absolutely insane. Oh, absolutely insane, and it it, it rattled everything. It I mean, rattled they the cages. Him for it. And that's right. when, from a Roman perspective, you're like, this is nonsense, you know. <laughs> well, but, what's fascinating about 
about that with the Romans is that they were so used to conquering pagan cultures. So when you conquer pagan cultures so much, the Romans just adopted everything. They adopted that morality. They they adopted that god. They took everything. I mean, they they were obsessed with the goddess Isis. Obsessed with her. I believe it was Isis. I know it was a female god. They put her on shields. They put her on tombs. They just they loved it so much that they even went and took obelisks from Egypt and brought them all the way to Rome. Think about that for a minute. That is the Rome. The Romans with no no eighteen wheelers <laughs> brought gigantic obelisks all the way to Rome. Yeah. It was to show the might, the grandeur, the power that we can do this. We can take this from that faraway place that is almost fantasy to all of you citizens, and we can bring it and pull it here. And, and, and so place it right in the center. The religion, I mean, the the real religious ritual was all. It was about Rome. It was yeah. about the city and the mm-hmm. people of Rome. The mythology. It was. It goes back to the city. This identity Absolutely. that is Rome and the preservation mm-hmm. of that. Sort of funny thing to kind of piggyback on that when the um, Roman sort of towards the end of the empire, um, you had a lot of young Romans. Who were start, starting to to wear barbarian styles, growing their hair long, growing out beards, trying to wear like you know the That's that happened. kind of the fashions that the the barbarians had, oh, mustaches yeah. and things like that. But it's just kind yeah. of funny, like, huh? Your enemy, and it's, you are. Yeah, they adapted. That's that's why I believe they lasted, you know, for as long as they did, because they, uh, the average Roman believed a number of things they believed in a ton of different gods from other different civilizations mm-hmm. uh I, I believe constantine wasn't baptized till his till he was on his deathbed so yeah. it wasn't until he was deathbed he finally wanted to be baptized and he also had believed in all these other different things mm-hmm. but that was your typical roman and then what's yeah. also interesting about being being a roman was that anyone can be a roman this is also mm-hmm. why they were they were they lasted so long and why they they grew because all right i'm going to conquer your lands like egypt but guess what if you learn latin you wear a toga and you follow our customs you're a roman your son can be a knight yeah your people it's, can they'll be our auxiliary auxiliary exactly so there wasn't that type the problem they had with the barbarians is that they didn't want to conform right and it was the first time when they had to deal with with Jerusalem and then the Jews was the first time they suddenly were like, all right, everyone, here's the deal. Uh, you have to accept uh, the Caesar is your God and all this stuff. And um, okay, okay, okay. And uh, you learn Latin. And that's it, guys. You know the deal. We've dealt with pagan people before. And they were like, yeah, there's, there's one God and we don't do that. And then they were like, hold on. What? <laughs> And so think about, so these are all things that, I, it's crazy because it, it's it's part of history. It's our human history, but you can pull so much from that stuff. Dude, they, you've got to read Dominion because the first sounds chapter, great. the first chapter Holland writes about is, I don't know the Roman general, but his, the, the after sacking Jerusalem, mm-hmm. finally stepping into the temple. And this, this Roman, you know, generally is like, finally, you know, like, I'll see what all the fuss is about. But he steps into the Holy of Holies. 
the place okay. where the priest only goes once a year, you know, to make a sacrifice and then come out and bless the people. But he's like, what is this God going to look like that lives in here? Right. He steps in expecting to see an idol and he steps in and the room's empty. Yeah, wow. He's just like, what? Or yeah. maybe it was the, I don't know if it was the Ark of the Covenant, but like they opened That's it. That's the famous, and yeah, what, which, uh, it, it was the Torah or the one, yeah, yeah, something was in there though, wasn't it? Whatever, I mean, whatever it was, I don't know if it was the, the Ark or whatever, but the space was empty. Like, yeah. This is just what I remember from the book. And he was just like kind of struck by that. He's like, this this is very, like all this hubbub for this and these strange this. people with their one God and... It's fascinating okay, stuff. Okay, you know, and then it ended up being their demise too, yeah. which was which was wild. So they had to conform. But that's mm -hmm. the thing, though. This is what's so brilliant about Rome. They're technically still here. They that's knew true. in order to survive, they had to fully accept a certain faith. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they're brilliant. Yeah, it, it was brilliant, and we we don't give the ancients and or even the people before us not quite the ancients but all enough credit you know yeah. like you said we all yeah. try to think that they had the same mindset as us the same value system when i tell or we my think students, they're stupid but we, of course but meanwhile like really i mean I know. everything we have is due to them i have uh, it's, it's yeah. well you know what what blows my mind too is i always tell my students very before we start i said okay history is brutal violent with little glimmers of hope and light i said so when we visit all these different time periods treat it as if we are visiting another country with mm. their own set of morality their own set of values and religions and, and systems and you have to respect that that this is what their culture is that's how you have to review that's how you have to look back at history because you if know, you don't it's going to come back you're gonna you're doomed that's famous line you're doomed to repeat yeah. it when you create your character and you have their cause, their moral cause and their morality, now, what is the groundwork that led them to believe that? Essentially, we just essentially did it in a way. Yeah. <laughs> just now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, except it's our story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Basically. <laughs> Cats out of the bag. Cats out of the bag. <laughs> but that's, that's the fun stuff. You know, it's yeah. just... You know, and I, I just absolutely love it. I really yeah, do. It's funny because the I really kind of feel like I've, I've stumbled into the Red Koi universe, and I'm I'm really kind of learning from my characters what it is. But like, I know Aiko has all these assumptions and proclivities, and mm -hmm. um, she's being pulled in these different directions. And just like you're saying, I'm starting to kind of mind well, well why does she assume that? What's right. what's the what's that built on you know what right. was she expecting and what's been lost like yes. what happens when you see you know your deity slain before you what do you do right does does anything matter mm -hmm. you know how do you not go Great into point. this nihilistic you know spiral you know <sighs> rip off your stuff cut your hair and run into the woods and scream <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, basically yeah yeah you can't wow. do that forever that's what she that's what she's figuring out that is powerful that is powerful what do you do when you see your deity slain my goodness maybe you that's know, the, that's the point of this yeah well you know what's funny you you think about uh you think about that though 
which is true. How do you feel when your deity is slain when a lot of these people who lived in these times, although it's not so different from us, no. how their their leaders ended up becoming deities to them, right? So obviously you have, it wasn't until, I don't know if it was Caesar or maybe, was he, did he declare himself a god or was it, it was it, was it Augustus? Was it Octavius? Yeah, or was it Octavius? Well, yeah, the same Octavius? person, yeah. Augustus. No, no, Augustus, yeah. His nephew. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that's... Hmm, it's interesting. Uh, you know, but you just think about that. Yep. You know, it's like how... You think about also Japan in World War II, how they viewed, they viewed the emperor as the sun god and all this stuff. He was, he was a living god to them in that time. Mm-hmm. You know, mm -hmm. it's, that's why it's so funny. We think it's so far, you know, oh, wow, they believe the Romans really fell for yeah. that? They believe that? That's absolutely crazy. Yeah. But at the same time, right, look what happened. World War II wasn't totally that, that long ago, right? Mm -hmm. And they believed 100% that Hirohito, I think that was, he was the, right? That, was that sounds familiar. He was a living god. Yeah. So it's 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 pretty wild. Well, it's like, and I even read the ancient texts, but I listen to people who've read a lot of the ancient texts, and mm -hmm. the, the at least, you know, I've heard that with many of these ancient cultures, they write about their gods not in the sense of we heard thunder and that must be Thor. They write mm -hmm. about encountering the person of Thor. Interesting. And people from all over the world have written these texts and. Or they bent like so. In that case, that was transcribed by Christians. The, the I don't the Vikings didn't actually leave um, their written sagas. Text, yeah, 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 right. But like you have peoples from all over the world have written accounts, and all of their descriptions of their deities are similar. That they mm -hmm. are encountering beings that are like fifteen feet tall and otherworldly. Yeah, and like it, it's just it's. It's delightfully weird this world we live in. It's, oh, it's wonderful. It's There's wonderful. even a uh, I forgot which one. It's it's one of the apocryphal uh, gospels. I think it might be in the which ones are the Gnostic gospels? Oh I yeah, yeah. Called? I think where at one point uh, I think it's after the resurrection. I think Christ turns into a giant and literally steps off and walks off the earth. You got to look it that'd up. Be, that'd be one way to go. <laughs> So like, to do it. it's just fascinating how giants oh yeah every and like you just said these massive beings it made me think of that how they're in they work their way into everything can i tell you something just kind of crazy real quick so please, from please, the same I, podcast yeah yeah where they talked about um you know the the different people so this one guy is a scholar of the old testament mm -hmm. basically a lot of these early wars that they're writing about with um the uh the israelites fighting the amalekites when you actually go through the etymology of a lot of these words, they're all like most of these tribes are being listed as Nephilim, the giants. Oh, oh wow! Most of these stories are war against the giants. Yeah, it's, Enoch it's had uh, Yeah, the Enoch had. Uh, I'm just gonna drop that and then walk away. Like, <laughs> yeah, what's going on? Thanks for joining, buddy. Devil Flyer says, "Pagan." <laughs> I could guess Devil Flyer. I could guess. 
Yeah. Uh, real quick, I love this. When your deity is slain, you worship the victorious deity. Deity, it's the strongest. Well, that's that's what tends to happen, right? That's the Germanic answer. That <laughs> is the Germanic answer. <laughs> uh, listening to you guys makes me feel like such a rube. <laughs> oh, my <gosh>. oh, <laughs> oh my goodness! Uh, is it the Gospel of Nicodemus? I can't remember. Crying I out. haven't read any of the Gnostic stuff. It's the, they're really interesting. Very yeah. interesting. Oh, I bet. Yeah. yeah, it's a little bit more. Um, I would say. Like a, maybe it's because the pieces themselves uh, we just have they're fragmented, but they're mm. a little bit more uh, not as cohesive. Mm. You know? Yeah, but There's it's kind of like overlap, you get though. yeah you get like little bits and pieces, but still still same themes. Though. Oh yeah, I you mean, know what I mean. At the end of the day, yeah, it's still yeah, the same. Yeah. But it's it's, it's so worth to I mean it's it's so worth to just to see what what were ancient people like. One thing I want to read is. Um, Caesar's uh, memoirs from Gaul. Oh, he's I would got love that, to read that all written. Have you ever? Oh, I wanted to mention this. Dan Carlin is a great historian with a podcast called Hardcore History, mm. and he has this like six-hour podcast about Caesar's war against the Gauls. It's called the Celtic Holocaust because Caesar mm. killed a million Gauls and he enslaved another million, basically unmade a culture. Wow! But he goes through with this brilliant mind caesar's accounts in gaul and he's like he's talking about it from like um you know like just a propagandistic perspective he's got mm. so many different things that he brings into it and he's got this great gritty voice that you just like it's so cinematic like i do this like i'm listening to my podcast on my phone but uh you know <laughs> it's it's his podcast is terrific and that's a great one to start with oh my god that's that's fantastic. You know, it's fun. They were the masters of propaganda, the Romans, and um, they were probably obviously the, the Egyptians. But their art was not really meant to be seen. It was meant for the dead. That's why all the mm. stuff we have was all for the dead. It was it wasn't ever really for um, humanized to see. Wow, I so, didn't know that. Oh yeah, everything we have, most of the statues, the scrolls, everything was was put in tombs. Uh, none none of it was meant to be seen. By living eyes it was meant to be taken to the afterlife so that's why it's really interesting when we think about how certain stuff is meant to be interacted with and this was just meant for the dead and for mm -hmm. the realm of the dead so it's really interesting when we look at stuff we've taken from pyramids and tombs you know they were never made for us no one ever saw them explains so all those curses exactly. exactly and antoine knows i see he's he's a dan carlin fan oh there you go Cool. Oh, he's got this nightmarish one about World War One and everything that led up to it. You want to talk about a horrific, horrific war? Oh, dude! When this mechanized world crashes into the old world of warfare, do you imagine those people seeing a tank? Let alone like that they had just all they knew was horse and buggy, the swords and armor and stuff. Like, oh my! Charging God. into leading a charge like cavalry. Yeah. But you're going into machine gun fire? Yeah. It, it's, it's absolutely well, insane. And no idea of what all of that, that, that bombing and hammering impact is on like the human mind. And oh. just leaving these guys out there for months and months and months at a time with oh, constant some of them, shelling. Some of them who were hurt just sunk into the mud and drowned. Yeah. The, the mud just... He's got this... Um, immersive experience this virtual reality immersive experience you can see a preview of online because his oh, big God. thing is he wants you to have some sense of it dude 
you can watch a preview of it and like see people's reactions when they're actually got the virtual reality glass. It is, it's important to do to get a, a sense of how, um, yeah. how much was sacrificed, but it is horrifying. Oh yeah. That's one thing my father says whenever he sees like my cousin and I over, we're, we're playing like one of the, the war games, even when I was little, it kind of ruined the fun sometimes. <laughs> he'd walk in there, he'd be like, what are you playing? And I was like, Oh, we're playing call of duty. You know, or like whatever it was, Medal of Honor. He was like, mm. he was like, you know what it doesn't capture? I said, what? He goes, the sweat, the heat, the shelling, the ringing in your ears. And he was like, and the screams of all the men crying for their moms. And I was like, all right, Dad, I'm going to turn this off now. <laughs> hey, tell him to turn the game off and go cry. <laughs> but he's right. You know what yeah, I mean? Like at the end of the day, it, it's completely true. It's like it doesn't. You'll never capture that. You know, but, you're not tired. You're just trying to eat your Cheetos and play yeah, your game. You're not carrying a hundred pounds of you know backpack equipment. You're you not know, tripping over you. roots and punji pits. Oh my gosh, we went to the Marine Memorial Museum in Virginia. When we were mm -hmm. visiting some family. Oh and, yeah, it's a wonderful museum. It's insane. What, yeah. it, but like they take you into one of these yes. villages in Vietnam and they've got the punch. But I had to explain what that was to my five-year-old daughter. She's like, why would they do this? I was like, because we do terrible things to each other. To each other. Yeah. I'm sorry. I know. And my yeah. father went with his, uh, with his veteran buddies. They did a whole trip there and it was like, he said it was really unbelievable. You know, and they get special treatment, obviously, over there oh, because yeah. <laughs> they lived it. And, you know, they go in there with the, you know, they take good care of them over there. But it's, it's, it's wild. It's wild. But all of that, you know, it all, it's all important and, mm -hmm. and, and plays a role in how we write our characters. Yeah. You know, and one last thing I will say that will make you laugh. I, I can't remember the damn, I, uh, there is a, a big, big, it's not an obelisk. It is a column and it's, mm -hmm. It is so superbly, it's one of the first works of sequential art, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. And it wraps around and it tells the entire story of, I believe it's Tiberius or one of, one of the Caesars and his, his, is it the Gauls? I think it might've been the Gauls. I can't remember mm -hmm. who it is. Damn well, it. he made his name with the Gauls. Who did? Caesar. Because he was so, indebted back in Rome, and he basically couldn't return. Chat, correct me if I'm getting this wrong. But so his big thing was, I'm going to wage this war, make it seem like the biggest thing that's happened. Which it, I mean, he's he's murdering, you know, he's killing millions of people, um, and that's how he made his wealth back. Slaves right. and and. But now, which Caesar are we talking about? You're not. Are you talking Julius Caesar? Yeah, yeah. Okay, you're talking about Caesar Augustus. No, I can't remember which one. It was a uh, God. Uh, I'm just going to type in sequential art Roman. Here it is. It came up right away. Wow. I forgot the damn name of it. Uh, Trajan's column. It was Emperor Trajan. Okay. How do you spell that? Uh, T R A J A N. Trajan's column, and it's it's literally in my. I teach this when I teach sequential art in the history of comics. This is like one of the first things I say is the. The beginning of sequential art because it tells one giant continuous story in different panels except they have no breaks they just <laughs> all just transition into each scene and it starts oh, wow. with the whole roman conquest i'm just going to pull it up real quick yeah yeah let's see um so I, it, when you see how and what's wild about it 
so you're not going to get the scale with this, but this is a real close-up so you can see the detail. Um, what's wild about this thing is no matter what angle you're staring at, you can you can get a piece of the story and read it. I believe this is it right here. Am I doing this correct? Oh, damn it. No, I'm sharing the wrong one. It was the wrong thing. Let me share the this one. Okay. All right, I got to share this. Sorry, having a moment. At least I didn't kick, kick my uh, keyboard and and boot me out again. I don't know. If you hit 12, 12, 12 <laughs> Randy, put a hole through your computer. So here, right oh here. Oh, my word. This thing is so huge. It's so big, man. And they put it in the center of the square, and it was just, it was the the absolute, they're the masters of propaganda. Mm -hmm. But the detail, the detail they put in this column, there it is. So this is like a rough sketch of how it originally looked. So this thing would be there, and they, people in the square would walk around, and they would follow, and they could see the story as it would wrap, and you would just have to look down. It's absolutely incredible how they did that. But what I love about this, and I have to find the panel, there is a scene. Because first off, all of the people they're fighting, I think it was the Gauls, I can't imagine. Um, they they turned them all into slaves and you know everything. Mm -hmm. They sold the women. And there's one moment in the panel. First off, and there's no Roman casualties, so it shows them that they were flawless and they, not one Roman died. Right. Of course. They did that on everything, even their triumphal arcs and everything like that. It's so wild. But there's one panel, and they keep trying to express how barbaric the enemy is. Mm -hmm. Like they're they're doing evil things, right? And um, there is one Roman, right, who is fighting. Uh, but he has. Let me see if I can just find it before I say it. I found it. Oh my goodness. You know, I typed in, I, you're going to crack up, but I typed in Roman head and mouth. <laughs> right? Because I, and what, what he did here, right? Well, whoever created this decided that they were going to show the Roman. Can you see it? Am I sharing the wrong one? Sharing the wrong one. Damn it. Call him again. Okay. They all have the same name on my thing. So, all right, I just X out the others. So here, everyone's like, come on already. <laughs> here. Talk about morality. Oh. Right? <laughs> so what's wild is that they did everything they could to portray how vile. Yeah. I think it was, it's not the Gauls. I forgot who it is that they're fighting here. You have to look up Trajan's column because uh, it, it was his. It was Trajan's conquest of a certain area. Um, well, let's say the Dacian, the Dacian Wars. Okay, that was it. Yeah. The Dacians or Dacians. That was it. And what they did was show, well, this guy's fighting to his last breath to the point where he has a severed head. He's holding his blade there and he has a severed head holding it by the teeth of a Dacian. But what's ironic is that because they were so barbaric, the Dacians, it was perfectly fine to portray Romans being barbaric to them. Yep. So talk about morality in fantasy worlds. <laughs> and that's what Carlin gets at in that podcast as well, because he says he's always questioning, is Caesar telling the truth or is he trying to build up the reputation? Because they're always, he always is saying, like, 
well, after this Germanic tribe is conquered, well, there's another one that's even worse. So we've got to go further and we've got to get them, you know? Yes. And then that creates great stories to go back to Rome. I'm sure some of them were pretty bad, but it's, <laughs> it's Caesar. So it's hard to, and it's the Romans with this mechanized, you know, warfare. Like, Oh yeah. But such a wild, wild image. And first off, so superbly uh, crafted. I mean, Oh yeah. No, that's you can incredible. feel the, the pull of the hair and you have all the commotion of war in the background, mm-hmm. you know, and, and this guy is fighting with a head in his mouth. It looks like something you'd see in blood room. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, this was great, man. I really enjoyed this. Me too. I really enjoyed this. I intended for an hour, but every time we talk, I'm like, I know. I'm more. like, has it been an hour and a half? I thought we <laughs> were only on for a half hour. Yeah. I'm glad people seem to enjoy it too. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in and we'll catch you guys next time.